Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Julia Chatterley, and we've got two breaking stories for you this hour. We've just learned an airstrike hit a detention center in northern Yemen, killing at least 60 people. We'll have a live report on all the details on that in just a moment's time. But first, to the diplomacy ongoing aimed at de-escalating the situation at the Ukraine-Russian border. A united, swift and severe response, a promise from the US Secretary of State if there's any Russian aggression towards Ukraine, further aggression. Talks between Antony Blinken and his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, ended a short time ago in Geneva. Blinken promised to share his concerns in writing next week, adding Russia must choose its path, diplomacy or conflict. This was not negotiation, but a candid exchange of concerns and ideas. I made clear to Minister Lavrov that there are certain issues and fundamental principles that the United States and our partners and allies are committed to defend. That includes those that would impede the sovereign right of the Ukrainian people to write their own future. There is no trade space there. None. Nick Robertson is in Moscow for us. Nick, great to have you here. A steadfast, I think, response there from Anthony Blinken. Two things stood out to me. One, that discussions would continue. And second, that there will be a written exchange in response to Russia's initial demands going into these meetings that we've seen over the past week and a half. And concerns also shared, not just by the United States, but by the Europeans and by NATO allies too. Where does that leave us? Uh, I think it gives Russia what it's been asking for, which is the written response. It's been saying that's the sort of entry to the next uh, round of of negotiations, which Sergei Lavrov indicated uh, was there, uh, which is, you know, for all involved, it means the diplomacy has a chance to continue, both sides indicating that. Um, the, The difficulty here, I think, is that Russia knows pretty much full well, because it's been told, what those written answers are going to be, which is, Uh, no compromise uh, uh, and no giving in, if you will, to Russia's demand that Ukraine be denied entry to NATO, that NATO roll back its borders to uh, 1997. So Russia knows the answers that are coming, um, yet it appears willing, uh, and Sergei Lavrov said, pursuant on getting that written response, which which Blinken said will come. And I'm sort of caveating everything here because this is the way uh, these two men handled it. that the response will go in and that there will be a continuation at ministerial level and that possibly the presidents, uh, Putin and, and Biden, could be brought in at some point down the road, but not there yet. Um, you know, I think it's, it's as unclear when we went into this meeting as when these two uh, foreign uh, ministers uh, uh, have come out. It's, it's, it's still that unclear. It was interesting because um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was asked, what does the Kremlin want in that press conference. And he he seemed to laugh. His response perhaps should have been, you can ask the Kremlin that. You should ask Sergei Lavrov. But um, are we delaying the inevitable? Because certainly if we go back and look again at what President Joe Biden said earlier this week, he suggested there was inevitability about greater escalation here, conflict perhaps. 
Are we, are we delaying the inevitable, Nick? Again, it's so hard to answer this this question because that's the big question. Does Russia really want to uh, execute military action in Ukraine? And they say categorically no. Well, actually, Lavrov wasn't quite categorical going into the meeting. He said, I don't think so when he was asked that question. Um, but it, it, it's so hard to know. I mean, analysts will look at the situation right now, particularly military analysts, you know, who, who count the number of tanks and who count the number of troops and, and understand where fuel depots are. And, and we have the Ukrainians saying that, you know, over the past uh, few weeks, Russia has brought into the, uh, that, that area of Ukraine that's controlled by Russian, pro-Russian separatists, they brought in 7,000 tons of fuel. So military analysts will look at this, look at this diplomatic narrative that's going on, that it's continuing, Russia agreeing to, to wait for a written response when it knows what that written response is precisely going to be. Um, and look at this and say that Russia is sort of ticking down the clock here while it gets the military pieces in to be ready for this uh, potential invasion that they say they're not going to have. They're moved today, uh, the first pieces of, of, a, of a complex and sophisticated air missile defensive system into Belarus, where there's going to be very big joint military exercises there between the Russians and Belarus military, which puts it very close to the capital of Ukraine. It's very hard not to see this um, as a clock ticking exercise, yet it is also a path to potential diplomacy. Yeah, diplomacy is certainly not dead, but we have to wait and see what happens after next week. Nick Robertson, thank you for that. And later in the show, we'll be speaking to the former State Department Special Envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, Ambassador Kurt Volker. OK, back to our other breaking news story this morning. There are dozens dead after an airstrike hit a detention centre in Yemen. That, according to the International Committee of the Red Cross. Sam Kiley is live in Abu Dhabi for us and is across this story. Sam, what more details do we have? Well, the International Committee of the Red Cross is saying that uh, since the Saudi-led coalition increased uh, the pace and extent of airstrikes conducted against Houthi positions and who others, it would appear, uh, in Houthi territory following the Monday attack against uh, here in Abu Dhabi against the Emirati capital conducted by the Houthis. 100 people have been killed. That's a figure being used by the International Committee of the Red Cross. The Save the Children organization has said that as of Friday, they, uh, they know of 60 deaths, among them three children. Uh, the Yemen is also reporting to be suffering from an internet blackout following uh, allegations of an airstrike against the telecoms installation in the important strategic port of Hudaydah. The Saudis have confirmed that they did conduct uh, airstrikes at what they called the criminals and pirates of the Houthis uh, operating out of Hudaydah. Hudaydah is the port by which the Houthis import absolutely everything, particularly much needed fuel and food aid. Uh, so this is a very significant uh, escalation following uh, these uh, airstrikes, uh, rather uh, missile strikes, against Abu Dhabi, which both the Emiratis and the Houthis agree involved cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, although what actually got through and struck here in Abu Dhabi is still being investigated, Julian. Yeah, and I'll just tell our audience here, you're not looking at live pictures, but these are the latest pictures that we have that you were just seeing there. Um, Sam, as you said, we have seen uh, a ramp up in airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition uh, following the attack in Abu Dhabi on Monday. What's next? What do we expect? Do we have to assume there's going to be further escalation and more from here? 
Well, it's a very difficult uh, situation indeed for both sides, in a sense. They both climbed up trees. Now, the Houthis argue that the uh, attacks against Abu Dhabi on Monday, Julia, were provoked, they say, by a return to the battlefield in some form or other by the Emiratis in support particularly of an organization called the Giants Brigade. The Giants Brigade suddenly started enjoying battlefield successes. That took uh, the Houthis away from their main campaign against the town of Marib, which is uh, very much under the control of the Saudi elements that are back there. Uh, and they started to lose, or at least not win at the pace that they've been uh, enjoying. And as a result, they attacked the Emirates. Now, the Emirates have pulled out militarily back in 2020. So if they did have covert operations, and there seems to be significant independent confirmation that they did in support of the Saudi coalition there, then this is beginning to suck them back into a war which they thought they had extricated themselves from. And equally, from the Houthi perspective, if there is a hundred dead in their territory as, as a result of these airstrikes, a, a, a counter-counter-attack, if you like, is almost inevitable. Julia? Yeah, oh, very unfortunate, but well put. Sam Kiley, thank you so much for that. And we'll continue to cover this developing story throughout programming today, of course. Okay, let's move on. Bubble burst or COVID capture. China has identified COVID cases in recent arrivals for the Beijing Olympics. The International Olympic Committee says around one and a half percent of tests conducted upon arrival have been positive so far. This, as Beijing reports, 12 new cases today. Ivan Watson joins us with more. Ivan, we were discussing yesterday, this is the most ambitious COVID quarantine in the world. And the big question is, will it work? The positive here, I guess, is that they are identifying cases, but it also illustrates the problem. Yeah, I mean, what they're calling this for the Beijing Winter Olympics two weeks away is is a closed loop. So they're creating kind of a, a parallel dimension in Beijing for some 11,000 visitors, uh, the athletes and kind of accompanying journalists and coaches and all that, uh, where they're going to be in hotels and, and, and going to venues uh, behind high walls separated from the rest of the population of Beijing. And the idea is that you try to keep any COVID that might get there separated from the rest of the Chinese general population. As you pointed out, uh, Beijing 2020 has already announced that they're getting a 1.5 positivity rate among the new arrivals. They also go on to say that there's a 0.02% positivity rate after people have arrived, but they insist this is not COVID, that it has been passed within this closed loop, that there are people who must have contracted it on the flight in and then it wasn't detected until a couple days after they landed. Uh, now, we have some details that have been shared about how isolation will work. If you are an athlete, for example, or accompanying staff and you test positive in Beijing, you will be sent into isolation. And the guidelines say that, quote, the rooms are larger than 20 meters uh, squared. The staff are helpful and supportive. Again, this is Beijing 2022's words and Wi-Fi is available. They also say that there have been issues regarding cleanliness in some of the isolation rooms and those are now being addressed. There have also been issues with the menu and food provision, and those are now being 
addressed. So if you test positive, you're going into isolation. Uh, there are also all these guidelines about daily testing that will take place of people, particularly if you're considered to be a close contact of someone who, furthermore, uh, tests positive. Some of this echoes the Summer Olympics that were just held in, in Tokyo, but it sounds like the enforcement is going to be much, much stronger in China. There's another wrinkle to this, Julia, and that is that China is also wrestling with outbreaks of COVID within its general population. While the national numbers have diminished over the course of this last week, they are growing in Beijing, 12 new cases on Friday. In most countries, that would be cause for celebration. But in China, you lock down entire buildings and neighborhoods and you test people by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, when you start getting any tests, any cases being identified positively. Julia. Yeah. And as we've learned elsewhere in the world, when you've got X number of cases, it generally means you've got a lot more. But of course, the, the reaction function in, in China is so different to try and contain it. What a challenge. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that. OK, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Phone service has been restored in parts of Tonga following last weekend's devastating volcanic eruption and tsunami. It could take weeks for full Internet service to resume. Tens of thousands of people still have no means of communicating with the outside world. Australia, New Zealand and other nations are sending humanitarian aid. The American singer Meatloaf, famous for his operatic rock anthems, has died aged 74. In a statement on his Facebook page, it says he passed away Thursday surrounded by loved ones. The cause of death has not been shared as yet. The Grammy Award winner is being remembered for his best-selling album, Bat Out of Hell, as well as roles in TV and film, as Paul Verkamen reports. performs sweet suburban melodies with dramatic flair, unleashing the lyrics of composer Jim Steinman. I go out on a stage as if it's the last thing I'll ever do. I, I will, and that's what I've always said. If I'm going, if I'm going out, I'm going out on a stage. Meatloaf. Where did that name come from? The real story is that there is no story. The real story is that kids. Uh, I was about eight years old. I've been called Meatloaf since I was about eight. Meatloaf, or Meat for short, was born Michael Leaday in Dallas, Texas. But even Texas was not big enough to corral his talents. Meatloaf would go on to sell more than 80 million records worldwide, one of the top-selling musicians ever. His three Battle of Hell albums became staples in college dorms. The first one selling 43 million copies. A battle hell one I was not ready for. I, I, I had a nervous breakdown. I went to uh, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists for two years, uh, and, and I went with them to deal with the word star. Meat got a hold of his demons. He starred on stage and screen, known for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> wow. And Bob Paulson in Fight Club. First rule is, I'm not supposed to talk about it. And the second rule is, I'm not supposed to talk about it. And the third rule Bob, is, Bob, I'm a member. Off screen, he married twice, became a father to two daughters. And Meatloaf entered reality TV, Donald Trump's celebrity apprentice. In an infamous episode, he blistered Gary Busey. You look in my eyes, I am the last person in the world you ever want to with. 
Such harsh yelling, a stark contrast to what launched Meatloaf to international adoration, that operatic voice. Oh, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that now. Oh, I won't do Welcome back to First Move and that Friday feeling on Wall Street with the tech set to extend this week's sharp losses. The Nasdaq has now followed the wider Nasdaq composite into correction territory. The S&P is on track for its third straight weekly loss. It's currently down some 7% from recent highs. Softer global bond yields could ultimately lend some support to equities, however. U.S. yields pulling back for a third straight session in safe haven trading. Oil also falling from seven-year highs. A significant amount riding, of course, on what the Federal Reserve might say next week on its monetary tightening path. Policymakers meeting for the first time this year and less Fed support for the U.S. economy has widespread implications for the entire investment world, including, of course, for emerging markets. And the World Bank warns the huge economic gap between poorer and richer nations keeps widening. Its new forecast paints a, quote, very grim picture. The impact of COVID-19, rising inflation, debt and income equality increased the risk of a, quote, hard landing in emerging and developing nations. The World Bank also says rich nations' fiscal and monetary policies are making the situation worse. Much to discuss. And David Malpass is the president of the World Bank Group, and he joins us now. David, Happy New Year. I wish we were talking in happier circumstances. It's your quote, very grim reading, uh, a yawning gap between richer and poorer nations, rising inequality per capita, um, hard landing, a greater risk. Hi, Julia. Yeah, I wish uh, I was happy New Year, but I wish it were uh, a, a good outlook. Um, and the problem is uh, there's not enough growth total in the world uh, for for everybody. That's clear. And then so the goal of development is to is to have people at the bottom do better and better uh, each year. And unfortunately, the capital allocation of the world is going mostly to the advanced economies and even to the upper in- incomes of those advanced economies. It's a very narrow progress being made in the world. You point out something vitally important, and you and I have discussed it before, but I think the problem's more acute today than ever. And it's the fiscal response, the monetary response of, of governments, too, that is exacerbating the situation. And if we look at the, the higher spending to support economies in richer nations, they're sucking up a lot of the investment. They're spending, but they're borrowing money out there. And it's effectively crowding out the borrowing, the essential borrowing that poorer nations need to do. And it's making their ability to raise money more costly as well. Uh, that's I guess that's right, and that's a, that's a grave concern. So if you think about who's done well in this advancement in the recovery, it's people who issue bonds, and especially big bond issuer, issuers. Uh, that means the U.S. government, that means uh, the European governments, and also the big corporations. They, they issue debt, buy back stock. And and so you've got this system where Wall Street and financial centers around the world are issuing bonds on behalf of the rich, 
of the corporate sector, of governments, uh, in order to put more money into those sectors. And that really doesn't get us to the end result that we want, which is less poverty, uh, more shared prosperity in the world. Uh, and inflation and higher interest rates is hurting that mix or making it worse this year. The other point here, I think, is on the monetary policy side, David. Um, how convinced are you that inflation, particularly if the bulk of it is driven by supply chain issues and blockages, can be solved by raising interest rates by the Federal Reserve, for example, or, or reducing asset purchases? It, it's a big challenge. The major central banks are buying bonds, which gets capital to the people that sell bonds. And so you've got a capital allocation into the sector that's sectors that are already very well funded. What we need to have is capital going into small businesses, into the supply chain, into, for example, truck drivers that buy their own trucks, and which is, you know, a lot of the way things move around the world. Uh, and so it's working capital that's needed. Needed, uh, but the system is set up to do the opposite. The central banks, uh, the major central banks, are bar borrowing from the banking system and then buying bonds, which doesn't make sense in the current capital allocation environment. We need more capital to go to small businesses, and that's not what the central banks are doing at all. You see, I think this is so important for my audience to understand. When you raise interest rates, you make the cost of credit, the cost of borrowing for everybody more expensive. But it's proportionately more expensive for smaller businesses. And I think your point that you're making is it's these smaller businesses that are going to help address some of the bottlenecks out there, be they the truck drivers or the smaller logistic companies. They'll eventually help the problem, but not if they can't borrow money and support their own businesses and survive in this kind of environment. That's right. And in many ways, mm. developing countries are like small businesses. That's where the right. growth can come. Uh, but the capital goes to the goes to the big businesses through the current system. And that's just not the way to really fix the supply chain problem or the inflation problem or to get growth in jobs. A huge portion of the job growth has to come from small businesses that give people their first start and give women a chance to work. And uh, that's true around the world, but they're starved of capital. I think it's also a problem of regulation in that the banks are forced to lend her to what we would call better credits. And that forces money away from these smaller, uh, more riskier businesses, too. But, but David, you made some comments recently that I want to pick up on that, that focus on this sort of misallocation of capital and of resources. And you looked at the purchase of the um, gaming company, Activision Blizzard, by Microsoft. And it was, what, was around $65 billion. And you compared it to the $23.5 billion that the richer nations are making in cash contributions to help the World Bank fund some of the poorest nations in the world. It's an average of, what, $8 billion over three years. The, the sort of mismatch here in where capital is flowing and being allocated is, um, for want of a better word, I think, heartbreaking. It is. I really wasn't criticizing uh, Microsoft. I was it wasn't personal. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't personal. I, I'm, what I'm observing is a system that allow that, that gets you to the point 
where you make a cash purchase of $65 billion or more. I don't know what they'll they'll come up to. But And then the, all of the governments of the world are only allocating $8 billion over per year for three years uh, to to the poorest countries. That was that's the biggest. You know, the World Bank was very successful in that operation, but success is measured in single billions of dollars. Uh, the the major contribute the biggest contributors are uh, g governments that will put in a billion a, year, a billion dollars a year. We welcome that. We uh, are grateful for the governments that are doing that. But compared to what's going on in uh, uh, in the uh, in the bond market segments of the economy, the mm -hmm. major funders. Uh, and remember, this long-term, short-term is really important. If you're well-to-do, you've been able to lock in a, a mortgage or a bond and issue a lot of it. And so as interest rates go up, you may not then need to issue more. You've gotten your capital. Uh, but And so the rise in interest rates puts pressure on the short end of the curve, which is where new businesses need to find money. You know, I was on a panel this week with the deputy head of the World Health Organization, uh, the head of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the head of Oxfam International. And I think they agreed the biggest failure of, of 2021 was the inequity in, in vaccines and the failure to produce enough supplies to help with that last mile of distribution, too. And I think it's all tied in terms of where resources and cash are being allocated at the right moment in time, David. What's the fix here from the World Bank's perspective? We need to continue to have this conversation about debt reduction and free up money to do the things that emerging markets in particular need to be doing. Yes, for vaccines, I think uh, they're, they're, they're the, a challenge is to get through the hesitancy and get, have countries have contracts for deliveries of vaccines that uh, have shelf life. That way they can go into rural areas. Uh, so we work very hard on that. We're up to nearly 70, well, I think we're at 70 countries where we have financing uh, relationships where the countries then have a schedule that will that will allow them to deploy. Uh, and we're doing that also with therapeutics. So that we wanna build that effort. We think that's effective and helps also with the preparedness for future crises. It strengthens the, the health systems of the countries. You, you also mentioned the debt challenge, which is huge uh, for for the IDA countries. The, that's the poorest, uh, the low income 75 uh, countries that we uh, that we provide primarily grants and zero interest rate loans to. Those countries are are going to be paying in 2022 uh, in this year. $35 billion of debt service, principal and interest, wow. primarily to well-to-do creditors. Uh, and there's no mechanism right now for the world to, uh, to allow them to delay those payments or to forgive those payments so they can put it into vaccines, climate, uh, uh, health and education, all of those things that are getting underfunded. Wow, $35 billion. Um, David, I want to finish by talking to you about Afghanistan. Um, the United Nations launched their biggest campaign ever, asking for just over $5 billion to help support the Afghanistan people um, and the economy, including unfreezing of, of frozen assets and jumpstarting the banking system. I know you directly dispersed $218 million um, at the World Bank, direct to UNICEF and the World Food Programme. Is more being discussed? Can more be done to help address this crisis? 
Yes, and we're working as fast as we can on it. To clarify, it wasn't World Bank funding that went to those, but it was the trust fund that the World Bank uh, manages for the donors. So yes. we're working closely with the donors. Uh, the, 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 many of them are NATO or our, our Western, uh, our, our European and U.S. Uh, uh, governments who have already put money into that trust fund to redirect it uh, at their, to allow them to redirect it. So I really want to be clear, it's difficult for the World Bank uh, to put its own, our own money into uh, Afghanistan now, given the situation with the government, with the the, the way the, the, the women are treated, the clinics that are having difficulty in those areas. But what we want to do is facilitate the donors uh, so that they can be putting in uh, money as they choose into this very grave situation. We've worked very fast on that. I was happy with the 280 million that we were able to uh, free up. I think it's some of the biggest in first aid uh, going into Afghanistan through the donors themselves, the governments that have put the money in. Yeah, an important clarification, David. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your time this morning as well. It's always great to chat to you again. Happy New Year, and we hope for better this year. David Marpas. Thank you. President of the World Bank Group there. Okay, straight ahead on First Move. More on today's crucial talks on Ukraine as the U.S. urges Russia to stay the diplomatic course. We get the view of Washington's former special envoy to Ukraine. Ambassador Kirk Volker joins us next. Returning to our top story today, high-level talks between the United States and Russia to find a way forward over Ukraine. After talks lasting an hour and a half, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, told his counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, Russia must choose between a path of diplomacy or a path of conflict. Just take a listen to this question to Foreign Minister Lavrov before the talks began. Is an invasion likely, as President Biden suggested? Unless the United States has to go to heaven again, I don't think so. Ambassador Kurt Volker is a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He was the U.S. Special Representative for Ukrainian negotiations from 2017 until 2019 and the U.S. Ambassador to NATO from 2008 to 2009. Ambassador Volker, great to have you with us on the show once more. Um, I'm sure you were watching both of those press conferences. In your mind, are we closer to or further from conflict following these talks? Um, honestly, I don't think that today's meeting made much of a dent in that. Mm. I think the Russians really are running out the clock. Um, they have announced military exercises in Belarus around February 9th. They're moving ships to the Black Sea that would arrive there in early February as well. So I think they're using this period of time to just keep the diplomacy uh, as, as an activity. But I don't believe that they have any intention really of stepping down. What's he buying time for in your mind? Because you said earlier on programming, uh, you were speaking. Oh, please go. Yeah, I was going to say military preparations. Uh, mm. I think they want to have some additional forces in different places so that they, if they do decide at the last moment then to say, OK, we will have a military incursion, they can do it on multiple fronts simultaneously. I mean, what we heard from President Biden earlier this week, for better or worse, suggested that particularly the Americans are very aware of not only troop movements, but the inevitability, perhaps, of what's going to take place here. How should the United States respond, even if it is just a buying time exercise? Because they can't move troops or adjust their military response without the world seeing. Right. Well, I think the U.S. and NATO allies should be using the time as well. 
Uh, I think we should be putting in place capabilities to assist Ukraine and to try to deter Russia. Uh, remember, I think Russia still has the opportunity to step down. I, I wouldn't say it's inevitable. I think it's unfortunate that President Biden indicated that he thought that the Russians would invade because I think we still have an opportunity to prevent that. Uh, we should be shipping arms to Ukraine. We should be training them. We should be putting some preventive deployments in the Baltic states. We should be applying sanctions now. There's a lot we can do that would uh, signal to Russia that the costs are going to be too high. The last time you were on the show, we discussed bolstering military aid to Ukraine, and we saw Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, confirm that they were doing that. What about humanitarian aid to Ambassador? Because if, if something does happen, and to your point, we hope it's, it, there's not an inevitability to this and there can be a de-escalation, but it could be too late if humanitarian aid isn't yes. provided early on too. Well, I certainly agree that if Russia does invade um, there will be substantial refugees, uh, there will probably be some injured civilians as well, and there will be a need for support for Ukraine, and we should absolutely do that. Uh, I think the urgency right now is, uh, is on preventing this. I think that's where the attention should be. Does diplomacy do that? Or when you have someone like President Putin, do you have to show strength and force and might mm -hmm. in order to create that de-escalation rather than perhaps words? Exactly. So they go hand in hand. Diplomacy without strength behind it is just empty words. Uh, strength that shows the facts on the ground that uh, re that is factored into leaders' calculations then can give an opportunity for diplomats to figure out, well, what would the solution be that everyone can accept? But in a situation where there is no such balance and one side believes that it has a military advantage and will use it, uh, diplomacy won't change that. What happens in the next week and a half? Because the Russians confirmed and Secretary Blinken also added to it that there would be a written response to Russia's demands, which is what the Russians have for days now been saying they wanted. There would also be an addressing of the concerns <clears throat> that both the United States, Europe and the allies have with regards to Russia's demands. What happens when the Russians get hold of that paper? Well, I think we can be fairly certain that that paper will not give the Russians what they're asking for. What the Russians are asking for is a guarantee of no further NATO enlargement, a removal of NATO military forces, even from current allies in, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and essentially recognition that Russia has a sphere of influence over countries in the East. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov said something interesting in his press opener today, which was the indivisibility of security and no building security at the expense of another state. He's referring to the Helsinki Accords, and those are two of the principles in there. But there is no threat to Russia. There is no diminution of Russian security. And yet Russia is violating fundamental principles of the Helsinki Accords by making these demands. So this will be rejected. Uh, the Russians will claim that they tried and that their offer has been rejected. And I think it will run out the clock for the Russians to then decide, do they really want to use military force? So the timeline? for a decision in your mind? Because as you quite rightly said, nothing on that paper is going to provide anything that the Russians don't already know. They've just been given it verbally rather than on a written piece exactly. of paper. Right. So exactly. at yeah. that I think point we're looking, then? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're looking at the, uh, the first couple of weeks of February as a time period when uh, if the Russians do finally decide to launch a military attack, that that would be the time period. Ambassador, great to get your insights, as always. Ambassador Kurt Volker there, so thank you. Thank you.
A word of advice for Netflix investors today, don't look up the share price. Up next, why pandemic winners like Netflix and Peloton are not in good shape right now. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are up and running this Friday. Discouraging news about streaming and spinning, a.k.a. Netflix and Peloton, putting further pressure on the Nasdaq in early trade. But softer bond yields and lower oil prices are market positives. In the words of the late great rocker Meatloaf, two out of three ain't bad. The risk of trade reflected in crypto prices today. Bitcoin currently down some uh, 6% and some 20% lower so far this year, just to give you a sense. Not exactly paradise by the Bitcoin trading screen light. Paula Monica joins us with more. Oh, poor meatloaf. Um, let's talk you about crypto. Words right out of my mouth, so to speak. <laughs> nice. I was yes. going to say I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. But my wife might get jealous. Yeah, but we love your wife, too. So it's lots of love here on the show. And of course, for Meatloaf, too. We better talk about crypto because there's less love there. What's going on in crypto? We have to blame the Russians, I think, a little bit this week as well. This week, it does appear that, uh, you know, increased tensions with regards to Russia and the U.S. and the whole Ukraine situation. Uh, concerns about uh, crackdown on Bitcoin mining there. That is definitely having an impact on not just Bitcoin, but other large cryptocurrencies such as uh, Ethereum. And, and Julia, remember that we already have worries about political turmoil in Kazakhstan, which has quickly become the world's second largest Bitcoin mining market after the US. That has had an impact on Bitcoin prices as well, because China has already taken steps to really put the kibosh on a lot of Bitcoin mining activity that had been one of the biggest markets in the world for crypto. So all of a sudden, it's looking like the U.S. might be the only favorable Bitcoin mining uh, market. And there are questions about, you know, the U.S. stance on Bitcoin as well, given, you know, concerns about regulations on uh, cryptocurrencies here coming and, uh, you know, possible stable coins that, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve could launch. Yeah, the Fed publishing a white paper on that, of course, this week. Um, plenty of criticisms, no stance actually taken, but you just get a sense that regulators all around the world are going, we see the threat here of at least losing some power over monetary policy in the future if we're not very careful. Hmm. Now, staying in the crypto sphere, Twitter allowing some users to set their profile pictures as NFTs, these non-fungible tokens and, and digital art. Paul, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Twitter is a company that obviously uh, is, uh, you know, dependent on trends, of course. And NFTs are a very hot trend in the collectibles world and the financial world right now as well. So it kind of makes sense that they're doing this. But what I find interesting, Julia, is that none other than Elon Musk, the Tesla and SpaceX CEO, who is pretty fond of writing controversial tweets, he blasted the company for taking this move, saying that it really is kind of silly for Twitter to be doing this, especially since, as he noted, there are a lot of crypto scammers that are prevalent on Twitter. I, you know, that's a very interesting point. I also hear the dulcet sounds of the IRS cheering this move as well, because you not only have to confirm your identity, but you link your wallet where you keep some of these digital investments to. Um, perhaps that's a layer of regulation that the crypto community weren't quite expecting. I wonder if Twitter gets a tax deduction for, for doing it. There's something else in there that I found quite fascinating and um, 
uh, one of the consequences, perhaps un- unintended consequences. Hmm. Yes, we will see whether or not Jack Dorsey has a, a, did a bit of a different tax bill for Twitter <laughs> as a result. Yeah. So I can hear someone saying, do they pay tax? Yes. Mm. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Now, not just crypto taking a beating. Pandemic stock winners are in trouble too. Two in particular, Netflix and Peloton, have seen their shares plummet. Peloton is recovering some of its huge losses suffered on Thursday when the price fell by nearly a quarter. It's down around 80% in a year. Meanwhile, Netflix is suffering its own day of doom and gloom today. The stock is down more than 21%. Anna Stewart is following their fortunes. Something that connects both of these is that in the midst of challenges to demand, they're raising prices, which mm, you can do for a while. I'm not sure how well that works. Netflix, let's go with that. What do we make of uh, their numbers? The stay-at-home stock run does appear to be over, doesn't it? And raising prices in mature markets where it's struggling to grow that user base, well, investors clearly not very keen on that, not least given they're not adding nearly as many uh, subscribers as people would like. So disappointing on the last quarter, they uh, added 8.2 million users. They wanted to add 8.5. That was their prediction. But far worse is this quarter. For the first quarter of this year, Netflix says they're only going to add 2.5 million, uh, which is really disappointing. Why? Well, here's what Reed Hastings had to say. There's a number of you know potential explanations in COVID, but then we worry about hanging too much on that. Um, you know, there's more competition than there's ever been, but you know we've had Hulu and Amazon for 14 years, so it doesn't feel like any qualitative change there. And overall, confidence in streaming becomes all of entertainment, you know, linear dissipates over, you know, the next 10 to 20 years. Very high confidence in that thesis because everyone's coming into streaming. He mentioned the uh, the two C's there, COVID and competition. I don't think anyone expected the likes of Netflix to retain the sort of growth it had in 2020. In the depths of the pandemic, people are able to go out and do more. They're not stuck at home as they were. Uh, but also it's the competition. They're not just competing with streaming services. They're competing for consumption, Julia, across mm. all sorts of different sectors as people are going out and about and going back to their daily lives. On competition, he slightly glossed over the competition that is out there, mentioning, I think, Amazon and Hulu in the earnings call. But actually, if you consider it, how many new entrants there are onto the market, the saturation we're potentially seeing with lots of traditional media companies, like even our own parent company, Warner Media and HBO Max, like Disney Plus, like Paramount Plus, you know, you name it. So there are more, there's more there on the market and they're fighting for those users. And as you mentioned, Netflix raising prices. Is this the right time? Perhaps not. Yeah, peak subscription alert. Um, and, and speaking of peak subscription alert, Peloton, uh, it's not clients breaking out of sweat on that uh, exercise bike on the treadmill. It's investors breaking out of sweat on this one as well. And, and I saw the scene as denying reports are production halts, but says he's considering all options, including layoffs and production halts or curves, as he put them. Yeah, I'm not sure his defense of the story that came out yesterday has necessarily helped this stock, although it's slightly mm. further up today. Um, to put this into context, Peloton in 2020, its share price increased by 434%. Clearly, uh, sales were going to take a dive once the pandemic eased, and clearly so was the share price as well. Uh, the media report yesterday did suggest, as you say, that... Um, 
Peloton was going to pause production of certain bikes and its treads. Uh, it cited internal documents, which CNN have not seen. It was interesting the CEO felt forced to come out and defend that story when the stock price just plummeted yesterday. He said the information obtained uh, by that media report was incomplete, out of context. He says they know who the leaker is and they're going to take legal action. So watch that space. Um, but he couldn't deny the challenges. And he did say that they're considering all options, including layoffs and production curbs. Julia? Mm. A little leaker. We shall see what happens there. <laughs> Challenging times. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Stay with the First Move. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move. The reinsurance industry is set for a strong 2022 as the global economy recovers and losses from the pandemic recede. That's according to rating agency Fitch. One area being singled out for growth is Africa. And Connecting Africa spoke to one of the biggest companies operating in the region. Reinsurance in a nutshell is really insurance for insurance companies. It is really the second level of insurance. After the insurance company insures its direct client, the reinsurer takes whatever risk the insurance company cannot uh, cover under its own balance sheet. That's really what reinsurance is about. We all have our capacity to do things dependent upon our financial resources. key thing that uh, we have always talked about as a business is building a sustainable business model. Sustainable for the long term, uh, not only for our shareholders, but for our people, our clients, and also I think uh, building a business that's not only premised or anchored on the profit motive, but on purpose. We would like to build a great enterprise that's premised on both profit and purpose. You need the profit for you to be able to still enjoy the, the, the benefit of shareholders' capital, but you also need the purpose for you to be able to execute um, you know, successfully. I think African regulation has been quite fragmented. And um, you know, from one country, one region to another, you've got to navigate a fairly complex different regulatory uh, frameworks that has proved to be quite difficult. Africa continental free trade area is an absolute imperative. I think for our business it's very exciting because of the promises that you are seeing, one of which primarily is a promise of a level playing field, a harmonized regulatory framework, no barriers to trade, free movement, free movement of labor absolutely important. the script for Africa's future success story must be written by great African businesses. And uh, our markets are small individually. Those great African businesses must be allowed to spread their wings, take advantages of opportunities across uh, the continent. And to a fizzy and finally on First Move this Friday... Having fun or drowning sorrows, whatever the reason, there were plenty of empty bottles in 2021. And I'm talking champagne bottles because sales truly popped last year. 
France exported a record 180 million bottles in 2021. That's up 38 percent. And global sales hit a record 6.2 billion dollars. Wowzers. One trade association described the rebound as a welcome surprise after a difficult 2020 with more people finding reasons to celebrate at home. And what do we say? We say cheers to that. And that's it for the show. Cheers to you. And if you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World with Larry Madowo is up next. And we'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.